Altbau, somewhere deep in the suburb of Moabit, Berlin, two wicked women sit in contemplation of the world, huddled around the microphones of their home studio. We are singer-songwriter Samantha Waring. That's me. And broadcaster and writer Megan Spencer. Oh, that's me. And we're two Australian Wahlberlinerinnen, meaning optionally Berliners. Or Berliners by choice. Three Wicked Women is our podcast, the third woman being the beautiful, bright and belligerent city of Berlin, brimming with Berliner schnauzer and tales aplenty. Each episode, we will bring you seriously funny conversation, fearless music and wicked guests. Yep, it's another Vertumpte podcast. And no, it's not NPR. Three Wicked Women is very loose radio indeed. Welcome Welcome to to our our world. Sam, your washing's ready. Hi, Megan. Hi, Sam. Mm, how you doing? Yeah, I have a crunchy one. Oh, thanks. Mm. Mm. I'm good. Wow. Um, I guess, why are we eating mm. and being a bit piggy about it on the mics? <laughs> you know the rule. No liquids, no food around the equipment, but we're breaking that rule today. Very special reason why. Because this is side one, track three, food. Correct. This Three Wicked Women episode is devoted to one of our favourite pastimes. Eating food and drink. Uh, mm, um, I'm talking about food. It's so good. Mm. We're eating the Berlin equivalent of Clicks biscuits. Mm. A marvellous round... And we, mm. right, th- this is a great thing. We raided um, Sam's fridge to see what we could put on them. We found bits of tomato, caviar paste, Whoa. some good cheese with a little bit of jalapeno sauce on top of mm, it. Yes. Very good. And now they're a bit soggy. Now they're a little bit. It's all right. But taste nice. Yeah. Right. Well, let's, while we're picking our teeth. <laughs> <clears throat> um, mm. Sam, before we tell people what's on today on this episode of the podcast, are there any Kate Bush International Day of Wuthering Mostness ever updates? Yes. Well, for people who are interested in joining in and are concerned about their ability to dance, we have solved the problem for you. We will have dance captains who will teach you the dance before the actual performance. But what we've done is um, a girl in Melbourne who's attending the Melbourne event, her partner reversed the red dress video, so that we can learn it the way we will be performing it. So almost like a a mirror. In front of a mirror in a ballet studio. Yeah, exactly. So we're learning it the way that we'll perform it to an audience rather than learning it the way that we would be watching Kate do it. That's kind of genius. Right? (laughs) And when I try and explain this to myself, who will be the mirror and who will be, I get... (laughs) Don't go there. Terribly through the looking glass. Yeah, it very much is. Needless to say... On the Berlin event page, the most Wuthering Heights day ever, hashtag day of Wuthering, you will find pinned to the top a reversed video and I'll make sure that that goes out to all the other events so that you may learn the dance as it was intended to be seen and you won't bump into people. That's most magnificent. I love there are dance captains. It's like Lindsay Kemp's in every capital city where the event's going to take place. Fantastic. All right. Well, I guess now that we have masticated our food, (laughs) swallowed it, taken care of the Kate Bush update, we should talk about who we're going to meet. Today, we will meet a hummus specialist from Israel. That sounds good. Oh, love hummus. Yeah. There's politics in hummus, Mm. Mm, as we will discover. Okay. Nom, nom, nom is all I have to say about that right now. And we'll also meet another Israeli woman, and this one is based in Berlin. She is using food to heal world conflict. And this is a fascinating project. I am going to speak to the Berliner who is behind an innovative food initiative in Berlin aimed at feeding the city's homeless population with vegetarian food. And Amelia Jane Hunter, who is one of our regulars Mm. on Three Wicked Women, cooks me a roast in her Manchester kitchen. So she's back in Berlin, but initially when I went to visit her, she was in Manchester when I did the interview with her. So we'll hear a bit of that verite, audio verite. Audio verite. But look... Without any further ado, let's jump into the Derner van with Oliver Budak, our wicked sommelier. 
Now it's time for Oliver Budak's Gut Feeling. Freak food and wine matching with Oliver Budak, sommelier, sommelier Berlin. Berlin. Hi Sam and hi Megan. Hi. Thanks, hi. For, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Well, um, since I live in the city, I came across, <laughs> like most of us, I guess at some stage, the currywurst. Mm. And uh, yes, of course, it's a cheap lunch option. In Berlin. Yes. And it's not even so bad. It's quite decent pork sausages, you know, which are usually first steamed and then put onto a roast and grilled, grilled. a bit further. Mm. Uh, what comes after might be the nightmare for any gourmets. Um, Seasoning with uh, curry flavor, paint, tomato sauce. Paint mustard. And again, as the curry was just always available 24-7, a beer in this town is always available 24-7, but the good Spätis also are very, very well stocked with wine. Spätis are very heavily built around buying booze in the middle of the night. <sighs> Especially in Berlin, you <laughs> to have to cater you for your audience. Mm. Yeah. And uh, they cater also for the wine drinkers. So you mm. definitely will find even in the smallest spitty at least five or six different whites and five or six different reds. Mm. Well, there you go. It's like walking into a fabulous oasis of uh, <laughs> drinking. But we should also point out that this particular food and wine pairing was inspired by the film Sideways. So ah. there's a great scene in it, isn't there, Oliver, that inspired this particular chat yeah, about the, um, currywurst um, and what we'll match Well, the, the hero, Miles, um, was ending up at the end of the movie with his best bottle of uh, Richenburg from Burgundy. How much would it be worth? Ah, uh, thousands. Yes. Uh, easy. That he'd squirreled uh, away f- f- to have with a great meal. Th- that's what he was always... Yeah, exactly. Mm. He envisaged that. Exactly. I guess sitting at home with fine wine linen and white linen and silver and... <laughs> An amazing uh, everything meal. went yep. pear shape in this movie um, for him especially, and he's ending up. This is the last shot you I remember from the movie where he sits somewhere in the corner of a crazy little takeaway shop, maybe eating <laughs> fish and chips, and is drinking his expensive Burgundian wine ah. from a paper cup. Yeah, <laughs> and even greasy food. But yeah. you could see a big smile on his face, and mm. he was in heaven. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna re. Produce the conditions for cre- recreating heaven in a, in a currywurst shop. But of shop course, always uh, <laughs> adjusted to the environment and to the budget. Yes. So we mm-hmm. are in Berlin <laughs> at two or three o'clock in the night when you possibly already have been in the t- on town for five six hours. There's not much money left in your wallet. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So there may be just enough for a currywurst and a beer, or a currywurst. And in this particular case, because you can get it. Everywhere and anywhere, and it doesn't cost much. And it's in a screw cap bottle. And it has bottle. a beautiful, lovely Australian patented Stelvin cap. Mm-hmm. Easy access, in other words. Indeed. Mm-hmm. We are now buying a Dornfelder. Ah, now this is a this is a much maligned varietal in Germany. Yes. It doesn't have a good reputation. If you would bring it up with any uh, connoisseurs, they would they would not even look at you. Look, you can make a good wine of, 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 of every grape variety. This one is a variety which was bred to be pest-resistant uh, and, and produce high yields. Mm-hmm. was created in, in, in the mid-50s. And it has some f- uh, faint parentage also with Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. which is one of the most noblest red varietals, and also Blaufränkisch or Lemberger, mm-hmm. which are beautiful varieties. However, <clears throat> Dornfelder is usually more, more common in the south of Germany. It's the second most planted varietal in Germany after Pinot Noir. Wow. We have nearly 9,000 hectares of Dornfelder in Germany. So it's the it's the ultimate working it's grape. The, it's the workhorse. <laughs> wow. and, and quite often they make Weissherbst, which is like rosé from it, mm-hmm. you know. Quite often they make them uh, sweet. For the currywurst, I did the experiment myself. I went into the shop, didn't look long, and I walked out with a three-euro yeah. bottle of Dornfelder from Baden, south of Germany again. And I've never heard about the producer again. I checked it out. It's it's not even filled in, in Baden. It's filled somewhere else. It's mass, mass produced. Mm-hmm. But it's a friendly and cheerful wine. Cheap yeah. and cheerful. Cheap and cheerful. So what about the taste profile? Let's get into what it yeah. was like for you when you actually... What did you do? Did you eat the currywurst first, then sip the wine or the other way around? How does it work? Again, I have not much experience with Dornfelder. You won't find it outside Germany, you know? Mm-hmm. So this is possibly the first time I drank it straight. So often you find it also in varietal blends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess you you want to have a look at your suspect first <laughs> to get to get an idea. <laughs> And it's quite impressive from the color. It has a beautiful dark color, which for many people it's important that the wine has a dark color, otherwise it's apparently not a good wine. 
it's quite fruity. It's it has bold fruity flavors of, mm-hmm. of dark berries and and sour sherry. It's immediately appealing. It, it's 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 cheap. a rough young buck. <laughs> yeah, mm. but I mean, look at the currywurst. Smell the currywurst. I mean, you can't come now with a Pinot Noir. Mm. That that would be an absolute sacrilege and 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 a waste. You you need a bold, beautiful wine. I think a red wine is fine. The Dornfelder doesn't have too much tannins, mm. uh, which is good. Which would disturb the whole eating experience, yeah, especially with the mustard. That would be yucky. It would clash. Mm. It was dry. It has good acidity, but not overly too much. It has enough acidity to cut through some of this richness and the heaviness of the pork sausage. That's yes. stimmt. But anyway. Um, <laughs> Now, if you're even well prepared and have a little temperature-controlled backpack with you or or you do that at home, chuck the wine in the fridge for 15 minutes or in the freezer for five, whatever, and drink it at 12 to 14 degrees. And it's just wonderful, especially in summer now. You can have it also with your barbecue, uh, with any grilled meat. Bold flavors need Mm -hmm. a bold wine. And then, of course, at the end of all this... A schnapps. <laughs> so you can digest the stuff. <laughs> Obstler to push it all through. If, if there is some money left yeah. in your wallet after the curry was and uh, the Dornfelder, but yes, a, sh- a schnapps won't harm. Well, Oliver, look, we're coming into summer now in uh, the Northern Hemisphere and, and it's a very special time in Berlin mm. every year. So thank you very much for that awesome summer wine and junk food recommendation (laughs) inspired by the goodly wine film Sideways. Mm. And we look forward to talking to you again very soon on Three Wicked Women. You've been listening to Berlin sommelier Oliver Budak and Gut Feeling. And if you'd like to travel with Oliver through his adventures in wine and all things liquid, just visit his website, oliverbudak, that's B-U-D-A-C-K dot com. Three Wicked Women. It's a podcast, so they tell me. Well, Sam, I don't know about you, but after all that junk food, (laughs) I mean, very nice with the wine, Mm -hmm. of course, but uh, I'm feeling a little bit queasy Mm. and I think now it could be time to eat something a little bit more healthy. And not too long ago, you visited Israel again, like in our first episode when you journeyed to Stockholm with your mum in the Eurovision story. Again, you journeyed with your mum as a travelling partner and this time you visited Israel. Who mm. did you meet there? We met a fascinating and very friendly woman called Reut, Miriam Cohen, and she is the convener of the most Wuthering Heights day ever in Tel Aviv. Right, so she's a Kate Bush alumni. Yes, and we yes. had this wonderful little moment actually when after we did the interview in this very noisy bar, she got into her car to go back to her apartment and we got into a taxi to go back to the train station. And running up that hill, the Kate Bush song came on the radio and we texted each other at the same moment going, oh my God, it's a sign. <laughs> so she was in her car listening on the radio to the same station and, and the I same was song. in the taxi. That's and we were just excellent. like, oh my God. But when you met with her... Going back to our food theme and Mm. healthy food, you spoke about hummus. Yes. Before I spoke with her, I just thought hummus was a thing and maybe you could vary the proportions. But no, there's a whole whole politics to hummus and people get intensely passionate all across the Middle East. About a chickpea paste. Everyone (laughs) claims it as their own. Right. And everyone has a different variation, different textures. So it's it's quite contentious. But... uh, Shall we have a listen to the chat I did with her in in Tel Aviv? I would absolutely love to. A little disclaimer, Mm. uh, the audio is a little bit noisy in places as we did record it in a very noisy bar because it was very hip but very loud. Last December, my mother and I travelled to Israel. We had two days to discover the people, places and food. So in Tel Aviv, after a lot of walking... And several glasses of wine, we had a raucous conversation with Reut Cohen, organizer of Tel Aviv's The Most Wuthering Heights Day Ever event. We met at the Minza, a cool bar, by Tel Aviv's famous Hakamel Market in the Yemeni Quarter, where locals say the best hummus is found. You live in the Yemeni Quarter, but you're saying that a lot of people say the Syrian hummus is the. Hummus is a Levantine dish with cooked chickpeas mashed down with tahini, the sesame paste, plus olive oil, lemon juice, salt and garlic. 
in Israel, it's been elevated to cult status. And Mum and I were to discover that in Israel, everyone has an opinion on this most iconic dish. Riet contended that the hummus in Jaffa, Tel Aviv's ancient port, and also in the northern port of Haifa, were much better than the so-called Syrian hummus found in Tel Aviv's Yemenite quarter. We asked her what the differences were. The thing with hummus is that the, the, all the real hummus places, like the good hummus places, they're only open in the morning and for lunch. Because usually they prepare the hummus fresh on the same day, and by 3 or 4 o'clock it's all done. Yeah. So they close up. Like they, they close when there's no more hummus left. Okay. Um, so usually, I mean, if you see a place that's open at night, it's not going to be fresh hummus. Yeah. Um, but there's loads of differences. Um, the hummus here in Tel Aviv, I find, is um, it's not as finely grained. Ah. I mean, it's, it's a bit, and they serve it warm, which I personally don't like. I mean, it's it's warm hummus. It's much heavier uh, meal to have. Okay. While both Haifa and in Jaffa. Hummus is um, is much finer. Yeah. It's much more creamy, yeah. and it's and it's in room temperature. Okay. So you don't feel like you're eating this, you know, cooked chickpeas thing. With, you know, it's not as heavy. And also, I think they probably mix it with more tahini because hummus is always mixed with tahini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that also uh, changes how creamy it is. Okay, so you've got a textural difference. Are there ingredients differences, or is it a proportional? It's a proportional thing because okay. I mean the main ingredients would be, you know, the chickpeas and the tahini, but then you have lemon in it, and you have uh, cumin, and you have, uh, yeah, and a bit of garlic and salt, obviously. All these things together, I mean, it's, they, they change the taste, and it's, it's amazing. I mean, if you're eating three different hummus places, you know, good hummus places, not ones that don't, you know, serve refrigerator hummus, you would taste the difference, you would notice it. I mean, you don't need to be an expert to yeah, notice yeah, yeah. the difference. But, Rayut explained, it wasn't just the ingredients. She had sent me an Israeli newspaper article with a headline that screamed, The Hummus Wars! We discovered that knowing where to find the best hummus in Israel is somewhat of a national sport. So a lot of people have different, and you know, it's it's a personal taste thing basically. And yet it's like a big subject of debate in Israel. It's like something that people love to argue about. It's like a nice argument thing. It's like arguing about, uh, you know, about sports, about your favorite sports team. Like, so every year, every newspaper that respects itself would have at least once a year the list of the best hummus according to us. And then people would argue if it's right, if it's not right. So the the Haaretz article that you sent me, I ran it through Google Translate, and and they were like, the war of hummus. I mean, they were talking about a hummus war. Like, I mean, they were really, they were taking this quite seriously. In some places, it is like that. Like, I don't know, they might actually take you there. If you're going to Jerusalem, a lot of times uh, there's an Arab village right on the way to Jerusalem called Abu Ghosh. And in Abu Ghosh, they have a place called, uh, there's a place where people go for hummus. I don't think it's that good, but some people love it. And it's like the original Abu Ghosh, the original Abu Ghosh hummus, and right next to it is the original, original Abu Ghosh hummus. <laughs> And basically, you know, they probably started off in the same place, then someone fought with someone, and then they opened another place, and they're still arguing about who's the original one, who's the Hummus is the real good hummus, but you know, it also gives you the chance to, to be really elitistic because you could always say, oh, everyone talks about those hummus places, they're the popular ones, but I know that place that no one knows, in that Arab village no one ever goes to, it has like three inhabitants, and that's the best hummus. That's the best one. And you know, it's sometimes it doesn't even, it's not even, you know, you, you have your own taste, but a lot of people would just say it's the best one because everyone says so with Rayad Cohen in Tel Aviv, my mother and I learned a lot about the art and war of hummus. I'll post recipes for hummus and the other food that we talked about on the Three Wicked Women Facebook page. Three Wicked Women. It's not quite right, radio. True that. Well... 
Hail hearty world traveller and fellow wicked woman, Sam Waring. <laughs> that was a really, really interesting chat. Thank you. It was interesting to do. So now from the politics of hummus to the politics of food. And our next guest also hails from Israel and she is convinced of food's diplomatic powers of healing. Is your show still called Three Wicked Women? Are we not still wicked? Tal Shalev. Hello. Willkommen. Thank you, thank you. To Three Wicked Women. It's nice to have you here, your smiling face, your first time with a radio interview. Oh, don't tell everybody that. I love it. Oh, my God. No, it's great. <laughs> we like a good deflowering here. <laughs> a virgin radio yes. experience. Weekend indeed. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be very gentle. Thank you. Would you be kind enough to tell us about your journey to Berlin? Because originally you're from Israel, aren't you? Tel Aviv, Israel. Yeah. Tel Aviv and Israel are basically two different countries. The same relationship that Berlin has to Germany. <laughs> genau. <laughs> yeah, so I came here uh, almost two years ago. I moved here because it's safer, it's nicer, people are actually nice, and it's colder, much colder. So great, and not a lot of sun. I'm surprised that you find people friendlier in Berlin. Well, if you smile to them and you give them the chance to be nice, they're actually nice, most of the times. Okay. I didn't have a chance to meet a nasty German. Well, except, you know, one Nazi guy that was drunk and told me that I'm too beautiful to be a Jew. One week after I got here. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Goodness me. Wow. It happens, you know, to Israelis at least. I think that was my only Nazi experience. Mm. But mostly people are very nice when they hear that I'm from Tel Aviv or Israel. Uh, they're trying to be very, you know, if they're German, so they're saying, I'm sorry, I apologize. You know, my grandfather wasn't like that. And I'm like, I don't care if you're nice, that's fine. But basically, most of the people that I meet are very nice and they don't care. That's the main point here. No one cares. Okay. In that's... Berlin, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Has there been any, any pushback from your, from your family or your friends about coming here? <clears throat> well, most of my friends support it. My family is a complicated issue. <laughs> mm. uh, my mom was supportive. Well, she had no choice. She always knew that I'm going to move at some point somewhere, but mm. not live in Israel. Uh, and she accepted that. She had no choice. My older sister actually told me before I left, you know, you can move to Berlin and go and have some fun and leave us suckers all behind and... You leave us here to suffer. Oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of a touchy uh, yeah. problem. So it's, it's, it's contrasting yes. different responses from different people. No one people. cares it's Berlin because it's kind of like little Tel Aviv mm. in a way. But um, no one cares from my friends and family at least that it's Germany. But they care that you moved away and you left Israel. That and you're not staying. That makes you a traitor. Everybody who leaves uh, Israel is a traitor because it's not okay to leave everyone behind. And, you know, mm. I think that everybody can make the choice of leaving and do something for themselves. But they chose not to. They chose to stay. I fought a lot uh, to change things, but it's a culture, it's a mentality, and I don't think it would change, unfortunately. Is the culture that you have to put your body on the line by staying to defend the borders of Israel? What's the actual nature of the staying that people demand of you? Well, everybody should serve in the army. Mm. Uh, whether you do it or not, that also makes you a traitor if you don't serve the army. I did a long time ago. Uh, it was not acceptable in my family that I wouldn't do it. Uh, so I did my service for almost two years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a full service and then I left and it's not that you have to serve like to give your body to the country. It's that you have to be Zionist and to love the country and to say what the mainstream says. That's how it is actually now in Israel, uh, more than before. The nature of Zionism is basically to believe in the state of Israel, mm. that it's a Jewish country. However, I believe that Jews deserve a country Yes, but I don't think that it can match like they define democratic uh, state because not all citizens are equal. 
in reality. Maybe by law, mm. yes. But you don't treat Jews the same. For example, Ethiopian Jews are discriminated, not to mention, obviously, Arabs and other uh, minorities. So it's not a fully democratic state. So it can be Jewish and democratic, but if you don't believe that it's Jewish and democratic, because obviously you can vote, you mm -hmm. can change things, but it's not the nature of democracy in my eyes. Mm -hmm. But if you don't believe in that, you're not a Zionist. And if you're not a Zionist, you're a traitor. Then go to Gaza and someone would rape you, please. Dear, oh dear. Oh, without a police. So it's possibly um, not unusual that you have decided to present food and conflict nights here in Berlin, given yeah. that you, you know, you've thought long and hard about this and you have been directly involved in this kind of politics at home and what you've brought with you here and how you think about it. We're uh, starting a project what, which was actually an idea of my friend. She's Armenian. She lives here in Berlin for almost a year and uh, we got together in a storytelling night that I organized. We decided, since we're both coming from a conflict state, to bring to a certain change, which we think that is possible only here, on a neutral ground. Ah, that's interesting that Berlin becomes a neutral ground yes, for Yes, I know. It's that's like the great uh, war state became the peace state. Uh, I actually learned that fact that Germans believe only in peace mm. when I came here and want to uh, pursue my PhD in security studies. Mm -hmm. So one professor in Freie Universität told me, uh, listen, I'm sorry, but we don't deal with war studies. We prefer peace studies because that's Germany. If you want to learn wow. security or war or terrorism, which was my master's, go to the United States, go to Israel, go to UK. But uh, in here, we deal with only peace. So it's kind of, you know, the basic concept of what we feel here. And I can be a friend with Syrians, Palestinians, uh, Lebanese, Egyptians. We can be friends with everybody. Mm. And nobody cares where you're from as long as you're a nice person. And we want to offer, by these nights, some kind of conflict resolution, like proposal to the uh, conflict states, what to do by the people and for the people, instead of politicians. So your first night will be a Turkish-Armenian discussion panel. Yeah. That is going to be extremely contentious. How are you going to moderate heated opinions, should it get heated? First of all, we chose to have on our panel uh, only moderate people, not extremists. We probably would have extremists in the audience. We expect that and we already received messages that it's going to happen and along with uh, threats that it's not acceptable and tourists cannot sit uh, with the same, in the same room with Armenians and a lot of phrases that I wouldn't repeat. Um, Are you worried? No, I'm an Israeli. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean you're tough? I can deal with everything, okay, that's fine. you've seen a lot. Yeah, yeah you can and, handle um, it. We believe in people. We believe that we can present opinions and people can see that there is another side and there are other opinions. And we actually believe in that. And we're going to have discussion about very tough subjects, very sensitive uh, mm. topics. But after that, we're going to have a, like kind of a section of food. So what role does food play in cross-cultural understanding for you or even in the process of healing these great political divides? Mostly similarities. Turkey and Armenia apparently have so many similarities that they're mostly not willing to admit that they exist. But you can see it through the food. For example, the dishes that we are going to present that night is a dolma which is something with meat. Every nation makes it differently, call it the same name and call it my own. The same with baklava. <sighs> I was sure before I uh, met uh, my panel for Turkey Armenia that baklava is Lebanese or Syrian, but apparently not. <laughs> the Greeks have it. <laughs> apparently every nation has a, a kind, different kind of version of baklava. Uh, but they, they prepare differently with different tastes and it calls the same name. So we want to present these dishes for people to taste. 
and to see how it's possible to be similar and to cooperate with each other. And I think that's the most important message that we give that night. I think this seems like an incredibly optimistic proposal that you're mm-hmm. facilitating here, like a, or in a, a, a forum for discussion. It seems really optimistic. Mm. I think why not? You know, I lived 35 years in an environment of pessimism. Sometimes we dream that it might be peace or it can be, but everything you do just got into like a wall because of politicians mostly. And how you how people choose to educate their kids and how the government educate the, the kids. Mm. And that's, you know, so on and on and on. Yeah, so I moved here and I feel the optimism. I feel people that are willing to talk to me, to be my friends, even though I'm Israeli. And it gives me hope. So I want to bring this hope forward. Our guest right now is Tal Shalev on Three Wicked Women. And we're chatting to her about her fantastic forum idea, which she will hold in Berlin, called Food and Conflict, which Sam, you're very intrigued by. I'm Aren't I'm you? super intrigued. It could be a recipe for peace. Do you think this is a model that you could take back to Israel and facilitate there? Well, they like food. <laughs> but uh, no, along with conflict, I don't think that would work because there's more to go before it's possible. It's possible here because they've been through so much, the Germans. That side or the other side, it doesn't matter. They were willing to learn from their mistakes, which is very important. And in this series of events, we don't ask people to learn from the mistakes. We ask them to listen, to listen to discussions, to taste food and to listen to music, traditional music. That's what we actually want them to open their mind. We want them to feel the other side instead of prejudging. So you want them to be able to walk out of there and take it away with them and think about it afterwards rather than coming to a specific resolution on the night. But, exactly. you, will, but you will come to a point in the night where you present some possible solutions for uh, consideration. Our pan- yes, yeah. our panelists yeah. are supposed to uh, offer solutions, but we also want our audience to offer solutions that they think would work because sometimes you get to hear unusual ideas so we want to hear this we want to hear everything and maybe form out of all of these ideas uh, some kind of proposal we hope it might work we have one final question who is your favorite wicked woman the first woman that comes to mind is Elphaba, a wicked witch of the west uh, from from the Wizard of Oz, are you talking? And from the musical well, she's Wicked. From Wicked. Oh, I've seen Wicked at least five times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge fan. I even has her tattoo. Oh my goodness! Yes. Wow. Yes. We're in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she had very unfortunate life circumstances, mm-hmm. but got over it and became a fighter and you know like really wicked woman. Okay, but basically, as I grew up. I realized that the women around me, uh, mostly my friends, my best friends, they are the role models and Mm -hmm. the wicked women that I want to be and I want to look like and feel like. I just get around all my wicked women (laughs) around me and then I continue with that and trying to be inspiration to others. Well, you've been an inspiration to me, certainly, and I'm hazarding a guest, Sam, today. thank you. So we would like very much to thank you for being here, Tal Shalev. Thank Thank you for having me. Three Wicked Women. It's a podcast. And rad. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we've um, ingested quite a lot so far on Three Wicked Women. Just letting out the belt buckle. Yes. Well, I'm not sure too, but we're not done with food yet. Oh, no. (laughs) I don't know about you, Sam, but so much about food, you know, online or just wherever you read it or what you see around you when you walk down the street, so much of it is about taste and fashion and some innovative pop-up here. And we just usually hear only these stories about the hottest restaurant or cafe or wine Mm -hmm. bar or... I don't know, some weird thing in the middle of a something somewhere. Yeah, particularly 
Berlin. It has a lot of food trends. Yes, run by hipsters. But look, uh, there are also tons of people around the world, but actually particularly here in Berlin, doing really good stuff with food in the context of social enterprise, mm. as in, you know, feeding people who need it. And I believe you spoke to someone like that recently. Yeah, there's a really interesting punk guy called Dario Adamic, who's been in Berlin for a few years, and he runs vegetarian dinners for the homeless. Okay. Um, Berlin Veggie Dinners, it's called. Sounds a little bit like Food Not Bombs. That kind of. those lines. Yeah, that kind of thing. Okay, well, let's hear Sam's chat now with Dario Adamic. Test one, two. Three Wicked Women. You're listening to Three Wicked Women, and I'm here with Dario Adamic, who is the founder of the homeless veggie dinner that takes place once a month in Kreuzberg. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. You've got an interesting background that led up to all of this work that you do in Berlin. Born in Croatia, studied in Italy. And can you tell us what you studied? It's fascinating. Yeah, I studied monkeys. I studied Japanese macaque monkeys and uh, reconciliating behavior between them. After that, you made a record label? In 1994, I was in a band and then with, uh, with a bandmate, we thought, oh, we ought to put our own records. And uh, so we said, okay, let's um, found a record label. And then before we were actually even ready to record something, um, a friend's band asked us if we knew any record label who would be uh, interested to put their record out. And then I just said, oh, yeah, we, we have one. We didn't have anything. So we didn't know what we were, what we were putting ourselves into, but... Uh, it was our great and our first release like sold 3,000 copies and for us it was like, yeah, wow, yeah. And the name of that label? Oh yeah, that was uh, Goodwill Records. Still active today, so it's been uh, 21 years now. And out of Goodwill, you created a second record label, which is more for the reissue of records that you love and the Underground Europe Record Fair. So I get through all of the different projects that you've instigated, both in Italy and, and in Berlin, that there's a real DIY ethos back in the day my band needed a record label so we started a record label and then um i wanted to release these bands that i listened to so i started the second one and as far as underground europe i again started from myself but i always think how can this be useful to other people because no idea can survive if it's interesting only to a very um, small amount of people is it useful are there people who are gonna like become part of it and of course along the way you make a lot of uh, collaborations you meet people so there is a lot of uh, do it together actually so getting on to the food topic how then does the homeless veggie dinner your monthly get together for people in the homeless community and street people how did that serve you what was the need that you discovered before I started Homeless Veggie Dinner, I used to organize a gathering for uh, vegetarian vegan people. And there would be maybe 30, 40, 50 people. It was a great way for meeting people. And then this Homeless Veggie Dinner idea kind of, in a way, it was like a transformation of it. I had a friend in Berlin who asked me how to convert a space they were not using anymore into something social. And uh, I brainstormed with a, with a couple of friends, and we came up with the idea of cooking for people. And then we were asking ourselves, who do we want to cook for? We thought we should cook for people that need food. When we thought how to actually sponsor this, because none of us you know, had money on the side to invest into it, we thought, well, maybe we can also invite people who can afford a meal, and those people could pay for their own meal and a homeless person's meal. And so that's a win-win situation. On one hand, you feel happy, that uh, you're feeding somebody, you're, you're giving something. On the other way, the homeless person actually sees the people who care about him or her. So initially we kind of, um, we advertised it on couchsurfing, and so a lot of couchsurfers came, and a lot of homeless and, and poor people. And basically the idea evolved over years. We started getting uh, food donated from um, wholesale markets and so on. And so right now, basically everybody can come eat for free, and those people who want, they can just leave a euro or two to support us. We managed to run this uh, project on a very low budget and offer 
free meal for 200, 250 people at a time, most of which come from poor and homeless community, and some of which are just people who are uh, not ashamed to share a meal with uh, somebody like that. Having been to a couple of homeless veggie dinners, the thing that I really appreciate about the format that you've set up here is that there are no social boundaries. It's everybody sitting down at the same tables and having conversations, dancing together to the music that's on. And that for me is the most wonderful gathering. How has that affected the community of poor and homeless people that you have interacted with? Well, first of all, we only do it um, once a month. If you look into it, we basically do nothing to solve the problem of uh, feeding people. Because we are often one meal out of 90 meals that a person should have in a month. But on the other hand, what we cater for is more the social aspect of the thing. So when you get approached by um, a poorly dressed person, you immediately think, oh, this person wants something from me. They want my money. And you pick up your pace and you just try to ignore the problem. But on the other hand, when you are sitting at the table with, with people of that same social background, um, because you're there for the same reason, to eat something, you, you don't have a feeling that those people, they want something from you. We kind of eliminate this prejudice and give people the opportunity to interact with each other freely. You know, there are a lot of friendships that sprung out of homeless veggie dinner. I remember this one man, he lost his job, he divorced his wife, he was kicked out of his apartment, and all of a sudden... In a few weeks, he became homeless, you know, just a matter of circumstances. And at homeless veggie dinner, he sat at the table with another person. And this person said, you know what, I have an empty room in my apartment, come live with me. And all of a sudden, you know, yes, the, the food is an excuse. And the reason why we do it is uh, it's completely different. Coming first from the idea of feeding people and then deciding what the target audience would be, how did you then get in touch with the homeless community and... Did you need to facilitate it or introduce it gently in any way? It's, it's a very difficult community to get into if you if you don't know anybody there. They they are, of course, like anybody, um, suspicious about your reasons why you're doing it. We had a great fortune to um, have uh, this woman uh, called Irmela, and she was working with a group of homeless people in Moabit through a church project. And for the very first dinner, she brought about 25 homeless uh, men and women from Moabit. They enjoyed the dinner, and uh, and they started spreading the word. Of course, we went to uh, homeless shelters and soup kitchens and advertised there. We explained what we do. We explained it's completely for free. We explained it's vegetarian. And little by little, the amount of people actually grew. And from the initial 60, now we get to peaks of even 250 people uh, per night. That's super cool. You do it once a month. Is the consistency an important part of the success of the event? I would say so. It also uh, gives us a proof that we are doing something right. Because when you have been seeing the same person for the last six years, you think it must be good for him. Of course, there are like new faces. Of course, there are people who come once and they think this is not something for me. But it's fantastic actually to see people coming and sticking with a project, both homeless and non, uh, over uh, such a long span of time. So you're listening to Three Wicked Women, and we're speaking with Dario Ademic, the founder of the Homeless Veggie Dinner, a monthly get-together for homeless people and allies. I'm going to take a stab and ask you if your interest in vegetarianism and veganism comes out of your punk background too. Oh, of course it does. As far as vegetarianism and veganism goes, um, everybody has a different story. I would say that the final straw was actually reading an article that a certain North American band was circulating with flyers at their shows. And, uh, and it was actually the environmental reason that kind of pushed me in this direction. And to me, back in the day, vegetarianism just made perfect sense. And I thought this is uh, what I should do. So if you look at it, it's actually yes, because of the music, because of the hardcore punk that I got closer to this idea. Have you brought anything from your Croatian food heritage with you uh, on your journey through vegetarianism? Uh, there is one vegetarian thing, which is burek can be with meat. You probably know it, right? But the way they uh, make it, actually, they prepare it uh, on the Balkan Peninsula is completely different from what you get in Berlin. It's, it's 
thousand times better. There is this moisty cheese that falls off this puff pastry and it and it melts in your mouth. It's 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 delicious. I did want you to just let us know where we find you online. For homeless veggie dinner, we have a Facebook group and a Facebook page. So if you type in homeless veggie dinner, uh, you get to both of them. For Goodwill Records, there is a, a website, which is www.goodwillrecords.net. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. You're listening to Three Wicked Women Radio. I've forgotten what the next bit is. Sorry, one more. <laughs> so, Megan, mm-hmm. is there anything more dangerous than a wicked comedian with a hot plate in her hand? <laughs> well, Sam, <laughs> we're about to find out. Jane Hunter, commit no nuisance. Stop out. I'm in the kitchen of Amelia Jane Hunter's Manchester house and I've been away all day and I've just come home and the whole house, including the hallway out the front door, smells of deliciousness. Amelia, what are you cooking? Well, I call it sort of the welcoming meal. It's... Slow-cooked shoulder of lamb, rubbed in garlic, lemon rind, olive oil, salt and love. (laughs) And you cook a lot. What's your relationship with food like or what's it been like over your life? Fantastic. I mean, I was fortunate my mum and dad had a garden, or my dad really, and we used to go out and collect cow shit from the paddocks and bring it back in the back of the Holden. And uh, he'd mulch the gardens with it. And I remember only tomatoes, beans and shitload of broad beans came out of it. But all of our family stuff has always been around food and ceremony and cooking and drinking maximum amount of wine during preparation time. Speaking of which, got to get myself a beer. Okay, so I'm following Amelia over to her Manchester white upright fridge. She's reaching in and she has a blue can in her hand. What is this? Well... Because I thought it was a special occasion, you being here, being able to cook dinner, having a night off, I thought I'd go full bogan and uh, purchase a four-pack of Foster's 440 Mills. Yeah. As vulgar as ever. Mm. I have to say, no judgment, please, down under. The export quality is terrific. It smells, doesn't it? Like you can smell the yeastiness. And you can smell the 70s when your dad used to go, go and get me a KB from the fridge. Only if I can have the first sip. Yeah, all right. And it'll go with lamb, won't it? Well, it'll go with the preparation of lamb. (laughs) It's slow cooked, Meeks. It's four hours and I've only got four beers. And, well, somebody will be going back to the bottle shop. That's a given. Uh, But it'll be me. (laughs) Now, I want to take you back to your bushwalking days in the Northern Territory. Now, you used to cook the tucker as a bush territory tour guide. You used to cook the tucker for German, English, Dutch... Australian tourists as you were taking them up to camp for weeks? Well, it's true. They weren't so much tourists, they were bushwalkers. And they weren't so much German. There was one Austrian who was an asshole, and I got into a punch-up with him on a remote area airstrip, but that's another story. But it was Australians, and they were all really outdoorsy kind of, you know, bushwalkers, gutsy enough to come on these walks. And because they were a remote area, you had to, like, keep your weight right down in your backpack. So we dehydrated all of our own veggies. So you're sort of limited, but not with the use of spices and flavours. So my favourite was always, like, a red lentil curry with dehydrated broccoli, sweet potato, pumpkin. And farts? Well, there was always poo jokes, inevitably, on any bushwalk or any outdoor pursuit where there's high-fibre diets, intake of water, and people are happy for the first time in their life. And so because we practice minimal impact, you know, take any photos, leave any footprints, and we are really, well, I'm very strict, ask any of my clients, and they'll go, oh, Jesus, did she do the bloody, you know, display of how to dig a hole? Oh, for goodness sake. So, you know, you've got to dig a hole and, you know, do your business, burn your toilet paper, not on the fire while people are eating around it. Thanks, Bob. True? (laughs) True. Like, big wads of dirty shit, you know, at 7.15 in the morning. It's like, oh, Bob, the smoke's coming over my face. Put another log on the fire. (laughs) Exactly, literally. Were there ever ever any complaints about the food? Never. Never on my walks. Is that because they were afraid of you? (laughs) No. Well, no, maybe a little bit, but they got over it and realised, you know, 
their lives were in my hand and it was it, it was better that they got were on the good side of me. Lentils or nothing? Lentils or bed. So what's it like cooking out in remote territory landscapes, cooking up um, a big pot of something for, you know, bushwalkers? Well, we stay in the most beautiful parts of the world. Like I would be cooking on top of a waterfall, like three tiers, and it would look down the Mitchell River or we'd be in, you know, a really small little gully. And But cooking out bush is just, it was gorgeous. You just sit there and everyone sort of gathers around the hearth and talks about their day and bandages their ankles and, you know, just lets their balls hang out onto the warm rock and just learn how to just cover it with a sarong. That would have been special. Oh, it was really special too when Paul, the barrister from Melbourne, came up and he was a really tall guy. He was about six foot three, really hairy, gets around the camp in his Tiva sandals, you know, the Velcro numbers. He just had a T-shirt on and he came over and I was sort of crouched down around the campfire, sort of tending to the wood because you can only cook on like hot coals. Flame will just burn the shit out of everything. And so I was like you know, really focused on the fire and then I turn around and his balls are right in my face and he's like spread his leg and gone, Amelia, is there a tick here? And he's got his balls in one hand and his perineum and his anus like centimetres from my face. And was there? Yes, there was and I got it out for him. But I was like, Jesus, Paul, this wasn't in the job description. <laughs> They don't tell you about that, do they, when you become a tour guide? Well, I always think I, I've, I love my life so much because there's copious times I think if anyone in the world was thinking, I wonder what Amelia's up to now, and they could instantly have that vision of me retrieving a tick from Harry Paul's perineum. Successfully too, and I applied tea tree oil afterwards so there'd be no infection. I said, well, it might get a bit itchy, Paul, so... <laughs> And he was like, yeah, you're right about that. Anyway, that's, that, that's just one night in the kitchen. So, now this won't even be close to being done. So we're in the kitchen with Amelia Jane Hunter. I never thought I'd be recording you cooking. We've got a cooking segment. Be careful, yes. don't burn your hands. I won't, but did you see... Talking of bushwalking and being close to my other, like my bushwalking kitchen is really high temperature open fire. And you see my hands are really aged because they've been so exposed to high heats. Wow. And I was a guide for 16 years, that's, you know. That's so true. Yeah. You look really... like you've got kind of slightly burnt skin on the top of your hands. <laughs> Well, thanks, Meeks. No, but I, I mean it in a, in a nice way. No, no. But you know what? If, if it meant that going back through time, I would have nice hands but not have those experiences, hey, these hands have done lovely things and picked up hot billies and that's why I just held that tray without... Thinking that you're going to burn your hands again. I had no napkin in my hand. Sorry, Mum, but... Thank you, Mules. It's my pleasure. I can't wait for you to actually try this meal because I love cooking for friends. I love to be cooked for and I love to cook for you. My turn next time. It's on. We're having a, a rotating dinner party. Cook off. So, if you'd like to stay in touch with Amelia's adventures through life and comedy, you can follow her on Twitter at Amelia J. Hunter. Three wicked women, not quite right, right? Speaking of social media, mm. I was uh, rolling around on our Twitter feed. Oh, yes. Wicked Women Rad. And I was looking at the Twitter feed of Susan Carland. She's an Australian Muslim activist and she has brought to our attention gendered snacks for women. <laughs> for women's. Women's. <laughs> and it's the, beautifully, it says smart snacks. Spelt with an X, mm -hmm. which I hate. Smart snacks, women's. Right. No apostrophe, women's. Right. And what's in it? Nuts. Women's nuts. This is not a snack food designed by a woman. Three wicked women, the sirens of radio. Sam, I'm feeling really full. Oh, I don't reckon I can eat another thing. <laughs> I'm done. 
It's a seven-course Sonic degustation. Yes. On Three Wicked Women today. And daytime oh, drinking. Oh, God, and eating too much. <laughs> There's always room for dessert, no matter how stuffed you're feeling. Ah. Just pretend this is Christmas Day. You can go for a lie down Yeah, there's a, there's a sweet stomach and a savoury stomach. Oh, I've never heard that before. Oh, that's my theory. <laughs> so a few years ago, prior to you organising this International Day of Wuthering event, mm-hmm. July 16th, don't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, uh, as a lifelong Kate Bush fan, you actually contributed a track to a very special compilation project, didn't you? Yeah. So there's a musician that I know through the house concert circuit called CJ Boyd who put out a call to musicians. He and some friends were organising a compilation album to benefit reproductive health centres in the States, particularly ones that have been under attack sometimes literally from Mm. protesters. They came to this album, Running Up That Hill, Kate Bush Covers for Reproductive Rights, and it was a really nicely conceived project. I'd done a cover of uh, a Kate Bush B-side called Under the Ivy just for my own benefit as a bit of a... Satisfaction. You know, (laughs) home demo. I heard this song in the 90s at university. But this, yeah, he put this call out saying, look, we want to raise money and we've contacted Kate Bush's people and she, she said, yes, that we are able to use her name and her image to raise money for reproductive rights centres in the States. So it's 28 artists. 28 different Kate Bush covers. Wow. It sounds pretty worthwhile. So if you're interested in having a listen to it and also contributing, uh, just go to Bandcamp and look for Running Up That Hill, Kate Bush covers for reproductive rights. And on that note... As we see the sunset on this episode. Episode three, the food episode. Of Three Wicked Women. I think we should listen to Under the Ivy by Sam Waring, a.k.a. Wasp Summer. And we look forward to speaking to you again on the next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone.
Wicked Women is an independent podcast produced by Megan Spencer. That's you. It is. And Samantha Waring. That's me. It is. Huge thanks to sound wizard James Tolson from Berlin Tour Support. To this week's special guests. And to our regular guests, Oliver Budak for Gut Feeling. And the very wicked Amelia Jane Hunter for Commit No Nuisance. And the Three Wicked Women theme song is Stolen Kisses by Wasp Summer. That's you, Sam. And our percussive stings are by Oliver Budak. And we would love to hear from you, our wicked audience. You can drop us a line at threewickedwomenradio at gmail.com. Stay up to date with us on Facebook by liking Three Wicked Women Radio. Or you can tweet us at Wicked Women Rad because that's frankly what we are. Share, stream or download the Three Wicked Women podcast from threewickedwomenradio.bandcamp.com. And we can't wait to talk to you again next time in another fit of voluptuous panic. Tschüss.